0: truth with tony shaper powered by sig sour never settle i never did i never do i had a choice of what i carried in combat i always carried the best and the best is sig sour never settle uh we are on the america out loud talk radio network also available on the america out loud podcast network check us out as project sentinel project and the london center for policy research londoncenter.org and all the good things we do uh, up and down the line. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Rumble, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And without further ado, we're rolling into our current episode with uh, Doyle Glass. Doyle is the author of Swift Sword, the true story of the Marines of Mike 3-5 in Vietnam. It was a number one bestseller. He also did a book called Lions of Medina. Uh, Doyle focuses on issues relating to documenting, highlighting, and recognizing the important work and service of those who were uh, in Vietnam. And so uh, Doyle himself is an author, historian, sculptor. What a great and varied skill set that is, uh, who has successfully done uh, not only books, but he also did a bronze statue uh, of John Squire, a brave uh, Marine, uh, Medal of Honor re- winner, apparently, who uh, was honored, and he did this in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. And I've been to Louisville; it's a great city. I I used to go there and uh, cause all sorts of havoc right after college, so I can attest that that's a great place. So, uh, without further ado, Doyle, uh, welcome to the Hard Truth, Tony. It's a real honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, and I, boy, uh, what a no better a time is than now, especially with Memorial Day for us to be talking about these important issues. So, um, man, how, how did you just on a personal, how did you go from being an author to a sculptor? I mean, that's, that's those things that's not like being a, a carpenter and a, and a, and a, uh, a, drywall, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, player. I mean, this is a diverse, how did you do that? what, what, how did you go to do that?
1: I've always been a creative person, you know, uh, yeah. before that, I went to law school was a prosecutor for a number of years yeah. I always had a a desire to do something creative, but I also loved history. so yeah the, the monuments you know I've done two one uh, in Texas uh, Medal of Honor Memorial and one in Kentucky, as you mentioned, John Squires yeah and in both of those cases I focused on individual recipients of the Medal of Honor while honoring each recipient from, from that state so. Yeah. The creative part, the sculpture part was amazing. I loved it, but I got hooked on the stories. So to answer your question, the stories of these guys, George O'Brien, Medal of Honor recipient in the Korean War. John Squires, Medal of Honor recipient uh, at Anzio in World War II. Their their story uh, really hooked me. So that's where I made, made the transition from the sculpture art part of it to Telling these guys stories because the stories are amazing.
0: Do you do both still? Do you do uh, writing and do you still plan or uh, prepare or seek to do sculptor sculpt sculpting as well? It. I wish I could, but
1: like all of us, we have limited time, and yeah, and I, need, I need to focus on a, a priority. Not that sculpture is not a priority, but it it takes a lot of time and effort, and. I've just made the decision that I'd rather tell as many stories about as many heroes as possible. And the best way to do that is to write books about them
0: and to tell them. So um, I'm a big fan. And I I think Chris warned you on this. I'm a big fan of apocalypse now. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if you know on, on Twitter, my pronouns are apocalypse now just saying, you know, just (laughs) if I have to have pronouns, those are my pronouns. And I don't know how you feel about this but uh, I've had a number I've I, I served I, I served for 30 and a half years I started out in the Ohio Army National Guard as a private and went up through the ranks a couple of my bosses uh, Doyle were Vietnam veterans I actually was on flight status uh, a couple of them were aviators and one of them Gary Enderley, God rest his soul I love Gary was a great boss he was a Loach pilot he, he flew the uh, the Cayuse in combat. And he he told me, maybe because he was an aviator and flew the helicopters as featured in Apocalypse Now, he said Apocalypse Now was the closest to to the reality he faced in Vietnam. Now, how do you view the movies that you've seen based on your research? Is there one that stands out as being more realistic than others that relate to the experience? And I'm going to talk about your book in a second. I just want to get a sense of kind of what, if anything, you think has already been represented in popular media or movies that, capture what you've seemed to be uh, what you believe to be true about vietnam uh,
1: the first thing that comes to mind would be the the gunnery sergeant scene in full metal jacket uh, ah. and that from my uh, interviews of marines and that would have been be reflected in lines of medina because i did yeah. followed the journey more, more in that <clears throat> book but that was fairly accurate as to what these young guys faced when they entered the boot camp, you know, put their uh, feet on the yellow footprints either at Parasite yeah. Island or, or at MCRD San Diego. So that's the that's first thing that that pops into my mind is uh, that scene. Uh, yeah. The combat scene in Huey City in the same movie, Full Metal Jacket, also rings true. Uh, some of the other movies, uh, you know, they, Deer Hunter, uh, those movies, focus on more of the psychological aspects and things, you know, issues when they came home. So as far as combat and being outnumbered and being caught, I would have to look at uh, battles like the Alamo or Thermopylae or yeah. even some of the battle scenes and say, Saving Private Ryan, which is World War II. to kind right. of get a sense of what I learned from interviewing
0: these guys in both books that's good to know by the way uh adam baldwin who was one of the stars of uh, full metal jackets a, a friend and he's been on our program before too as a matter of fact we talked mm-hmm. recently with him but you know he played uh, mother animal animal mother in, right uh, full I metal jacket yeah i mean he still gets memed to death during mother's day it's like i asked him i was like do you get any money out of that I said, no i don't get a all those things. so but well, anyway it was the, but the m60 machine gunner the that's right that's the- right yeah i remember that that's right yeah. man and, and and apparently i don't know i don't want to get off to trap uh, topic too far but that was filmed in england and it was colder than hell and they and of course they're trying to film like they're in the the tropic jungle and so he was telling me stories about how anyway anyway we're getting off track but <laughs> but it's good to know that that's kind of a realistic scene and i i i have similar uh, beliefs like i said some of the movies i've seen where some are good and some are bad so let's Talk specifically about your book now. So uh, for those, and we'll make sure that people can get, get the information on it from our website. Uh, Swift Sword: The True Story of the Marines of Mike 3-5 in Vietnam, uh, 4 September 1967. So let's start off with the men. Uh, we've talked about kind of some of the stuff in uh, popular culture, what they faced. What was, what were like the, the common feature, if there was one, Doyle, that came through when you interviewed all these men for the book?
1: Solid, solid men.
0: Yeah. Patriotic,
1: brave, humble, uh, burned, uh, you know, as when they came home and there were the vestiges of that, but great friends, great patriots. um, And like I said, uh, humble people that, you know, wanted to do something for their country, wanted to fight for their country and do the right thing. Great friends. Comment, so, so
0: as you went through and talked to him, is and this is a, a sensitive topic because I think you know I'm a combat veteran. We all have things which haunt us. What what were, besides not getting the recognition they did, which I want to talk about a bit here in a second, is there are there other things about their time in combat that remain something that that stays with them or stayed with them? And you mentioned in our pre-interview that some of these folks are no longer with us and and God rest their soul. But was there some feature that that they felt was unresolved or wanted to have clarity of a res- resolution of from their experience in, in combat in Vietnam? Yeah, you know, I'd say there are a number of issues. Uh, you know, first
1: off, the M 16 was a new rifle in Vietnam. Right. And in September of 1967, it was a faulty weapon and, yeah. which, and malfunction that cost a lot of lives. Uh, the men on the ground, the soldiers and the Marines were blamed for not keeping the weapons clean. Well, we know that's not true. I mean, so that's one. Uh, And, you know, different issues, uh, they would gain a piece of territory and then have to leave a piece of territory and have the enemy come back to it. That happened time and again, never happened in World War Two. We had the individual replacement system where new guys fresh from the States would drop into a veteran unit and right. basically be shunned because they would make mistakes that would get people killed. Right. So at a higher level bureaucracy, I would say made a lot of mistakes that I would say hampered these guys in a lot of ways, which makes their bravery, their gallantry and their resourcefulness even more impressive in fighting an incredibly tenacious and tough enemy.
0: So uh, on that point, now th- everything you're describing brought to mind instantly the image of "Goodnight Saigon," the Billy Joel song. The lyrics are haunting. I used to love that song as a kid. Well, I didn't understand what it meant. Now I do. Uh, is that? I, I mean, you know, they owned, the, we owned the day, they owned the night. It talks about the Paris Island, and just these kids. They they, they were kids. I mean, let's be honest here. These kids were, you know, the the the. The the age of most combatants in Vietnam was is very low. I mean, World War II, I think you can attest to this was way higher because people were enlisted higher older ages. I mean, even though it was young, it wasn't as young as Vietnam. So a lot of these, you're talking about kids going into combat essentially, which even speaks more highly of their character to have developed a sense of patriotism and capability at a very young age. Would you agree with that as a idea? Absolutely, the, and, yeah. and to that
1: point, Leadership in with these companies was also a problem because the the young lieutenants and the captains would rotate out after six months. So yeah. you had the young people you just spoke about being led by very inexperienced, not that it mm. was the fault uh, officers straight from the basic school, you know, from the states. Yeah. In Swift Sword, the commander of Mike Three Five was a lieutenant, JD Murray, a great marine. Navy Cross recipient, who luckily, by the grace of God, had experience in combat and stayed so that he could save lives to help save these young guys. Not only the young guys, the grunts that you just spoke about, but also those young officers that he had to come in and and
0: train and lead in combat. Trust me, I understand it. I just saw uh, I had to go do a eulogy for a close friend in Ohio, and I went back and saw one of my close uh, NCO friends who basically saved my ass as a lieutenant. And he, he retired as a command sergeant major and me as a lieutenant colonel, obviously. And we, we were reminiscing about what a, what a, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I was a handful as lieutenant, just saying. And <laughs> uh, we were talking about that and how the importance of NCOs and the lieutenant relationship. And one of those things I think I, I learned, and I've said this publicly several times, I think. Every officer needs to serve sometime as enlisted because Doyle, I'm telling you, there's no there's no way to replace experience. There's no way for an officer to get that experience of having to go scrub field kitchens, which I did, or have to do those drudgery things of being on the line, doing those hard things. So I do believe lieutenants are much better. As officers, if they've had that experience, with that said, I'll get off my high, high horse now and move on to the, the content we need to focus on, which is the 11 day operation, which that is a swift sword. So tell us about the conditions for swift sword, both kind of before what was going on, what was important that led to the operation. And then we'll, we'll talk about the operation itself a little bit and then the conclusion of it. So let's start with the, what was going on mm-hmm. that uh, regarding circumstance that led up to this operation. Well, it was not a planned operation. It, it came about by circumstances. On September
1: 3rd, 1967, South Vietnam had a presidential election uh, mm-hmm. you know, for the entire country, obviously the South. Yeah. The Marines were out in the Quezon Valley, which was produce rich, a vital place for both sides, providing security for voters in the election. Uh, one of the companies, Delta 1-5, was providing security near the village of Dong Son in the Khe Valley. Mm -hmm. They camped out overnight uh, by this river, the Lili River, and they were in essence ambushed that night by at least 2,000 NVA bent on taking every Marine out of the Khe Valley. Wow. That morning, and the Khe Valley is huge. There were not enough Marine units to police the whole area. That was a constant problem in Vietnam. Mike 35 was known as a Bald Eagle Company, which is basically a quick reaction force located a few kilometers away at a different base, different battalion. They were called in hey, you guys got to drop everything and move to go rescue Delta and then also Bravo 15 near the village of Dong Son. So that's how the operation kicked off with Mike 35 and Kilo 35, another company coming. Uh, being dropped into uh, hot LZ and to basically march to go rescue their fellow Marines. So that's how Operation Swift kicked off, uh, basically, in a lot of ways, playing into the hands of the NVA.
0: So it's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, it sounds like it was a very uh, reactive, like we got to do something here. And um, obviously, one of the things I would argue that happened in Vietnam is that we fundamentally did not understand the enemy. We'll talk more about that a bit, but I think there were some mistakes made regarding motivation. I mean, uh, I'm very gratified now, and I'm saying this with all due humility. I appreciate the fact that I can buy Nikes made in Vietnam. They're great, you know, and I I like the fact that we, we have them as an ally now, but, man, it was a rough road to get there. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that after we go through kind of you know, the, the, what happened during this battle? So you've, you've laid the circumstance. So now we're in the battle. What, what goes on in this battle over these uh, these 11 days? Well, my book focuses primarily on one day of 24
1: hours of combat. Well, let's go through that a little bit then. That'd yes, September fourth. So basically, they get the call early in the morning. You've got to go rescue uh, Delta and Bravo-15. They take C-9 helicopters, which were, had been recalled due to rotor problems, uh, climbed aboard and were dropped into an
0: LZ in the Quezon Valley. That and LZ- f- by the way, let me just let me just stop you there one one second, Doyle. Have you been to the Marine Corps Museum yet? I have. Absolutely. So, few- so there is a CH-46 you come off the back of, and <laughs> it gives me chills just thinking about it because it, it's it's like that. It's just like coming off the back of one of those things, which I've I've come off the back of a 47, not a 46, but. Man, I mean, the smell, the smell actually smells like the helicopter, for goodness sake. Anyway, I'm just, you know, for people who want to know what he's talking about, how, what, it, what that experience is, go to the U.S. Marine Corps Museum. And there's a thing in there where you you just walk through, you don't even know you're walking through the back of a helicopter. Next thing you know, you've got this, the, the, the simulation of a down blast and the smell of a, of a helicopter. So it, 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 those guys had to experience that right coming off the back of the 46, like, oh, that. I just want to put that in there. there. Yeah. No. So, so keep absolutely. going. I don't want to, but I just want to throw it in. Oh, no, no problem. So
1: the, the plan was for the battalion command group and Mike and Kilo, the two companies to land in the same landing zone and go to the rescue of these other two companies together. That didn't mm-hmm. happen. Kilo three, five was landed in a different landing zone. That landing zone was hot. So they put Mike, the, who is the subject of my book, in a different landing zone, so these companies are already separated. Yeah. 164 men in each company, thousands of NBA are already isolated and trying to go, you know, save more isolated Marines. So they go into the Quezon Valley, already at a disadvantage. I mentioned the mm. M16s and you know those faulty. Oh weapons. yeah, we
0: could we could have a whole show show on that issue. Trust me. But, right. Yeah. So the guys march
1: they get the, they find where they're at they get their location they you know they go toward uh, delta and bravo 15 near Dongsan and they head in that direction and as they're marching after maybe 2 hours or so spread out they come to uh, a knoll that looked out on a valley it was mm-hmm. a very peaceful serene scene rice paddies but the odd thing was there was no sound. There were no birds. There were no uh, oxen. There were no villagers who normally would be tending to their crops at that time, which was an immediate sign that something was wrong. And you had one man, Lance Corporal Jack Swan, who's one of the men who's passed away. Great, great guy. Was the point man. I believe he was 20 at the time, maybe an old man at <laughs> As the point man for the entire company, yeah. and he crests the knoll, walks out. He sees what he thinks is a bush, what looks like a bush, moving. He yells back to his um, sergeant, Craig Sullivan. You know, Sergeant, I think I see a bush move. And the, and Sergeant said, "You know, if that son of a bitch moves again, shoot it." It did. He fired his uh, grenade launcher. Other Marines fired their M-16 and then all hell broke loose, uh, basically like a beehive. Wow. Bottom line, countless NVA were hidden in that valley, which was an open valley, bright sunlight, you know, maybe a little after noon, but their camouflage was so expert, was so incredible that they were able basically to not only, the ambush was, was triggered early. If the men, if, the company of Marines had actually gone into that valley when the ambush was sprung. They probably likely would all be dead. I mean, think yep. of Custer at the Battle of the, L- of the Little Bighorn. But wow. they were on that knoll. Jack Swan was able to trigger that ambush early. And countless NVA, expert veteran soldiers, incredibly camouflaged, then came at them. AK-47s, a much better weapon than the M-16, grenade yep. launchers, mortars, etc. Yeah, highly outnumbered. And suddenly, the mike 35 the company that was supposed to rescue Delta-15, are in need of rescue themselves.
0: Wow. Well, look, I've experienced tipping a or being able to avoid an ambush early. I mean, in Dark Art, my book, we had a similar thing, not nearly the scope you're talking about here. So, so clearly, it, it, let's get through this a little bit. So clearly, these men showed not a great situational awareness and were able to essentially act in their own interest, so to speak, and stop the worst case from happening. But it sounds like this could have been horrific. Uh, and it, it, kudos to them for being able to react and effectively defend themselves in such a way. So so let's talk about two things here do. We you know we've got about five minutes left and I'd like to go through and combine both of them together. The outcome of the battle, what really happened. And then uh, your experience from having Viet, visited Vietnam, because I think the two are interrelated. The, the way the battle ends, what happens in the war and you're visited to to Vietnam. So let's talk about that. What ended up happening in in the war and then you went to to, to Vietnam in 2009 and you've personally observed the ultimate outcome of that battle. So let's talk about that real quick. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I mentioned uh, Lieutenant J.D. Murray. His leadership, his cool headed leadership was probably the single overriding factor that saved these Marines. Hmm. Bottom line, they formed a perimeter which could not be breached. If the NVA breached that perimeter, they could get inside their lines and and destroy them piecemeal. Hmm. The NCOs, I mentioned Craig Sullivan. There was another one, uh, Larry Peters, a Medal of Honor recipient who was able to conduct a tactical retreat when his men were ambushed and closed the line. That saved countless lives. We had Father Vincent Capodano, a, a Catholic priest who was a Navy chaplain, also a Medal of Honor recipient who was saving lives until he himself was killed uh, out on the line. So bottom line, completely outnumbered with the help and the aid of incredible air support. Uh, The the bombers coming in, they were able to drop napalm and tactical bombs to help stay Uh, the outcome. We had the officers in the Bird Dog, which was a Piper Cub that was a spotter for these bombers, incredibly dangerous important duty bottom line they were able to hold the perimeter and survive until daylight and the nva due to the tenacious defense backed off which was i would say completely unexpected countless times in vietnam we don't know about it but but marines and small units were overrun and many men were wiped out and killed right in this particular case it didn't happen
0: So so they survived and then uh Fast forward in 2009, some of these men, rec- rec- I don't know what the word would be, reminisced or was able mm-hmm. to revisit this issue. So, a, amazing battle. It, that was. So Yeah, so so in 2009, basically men from both sides, I, I, I presume, got together and talked about this battle. So please go through that with us and your experience. Absolutely. In we, we, took, we took the trip to Vietnam, which was an incredible
1: trip. One of the. Yeah. Most moving moments of my life was walking in the Quezon Valley and finding that battlefield, the Knoll wow. battlefield, with wow. these
0: guys. Yeah. And
1: they geez. found the, what was left of the craters. And
2: hmm.
0: uh,
1: one of the men with us was an NVA colonel who was on the other side at the time. Yeah. And he was, That's incredible. Wow. A great gentleman. Um, yeah. And just watching these guys standing apart from them and watching them, the brotherhood, the love that they have for their fellow. Marine. uh, That's something that is indescribable and a wonder to witness.
0: So, Doyle, talk about this real quick, just to wrap it all up. Uh, This is all about honor, uh, integrity, about service. These men uh, have served uh, both countries, you know, America and Vietnam. Now we're allies. Uh, How do you view the path forward for our two countries based on your experience? Well, I think that these veterans
1: set the example. I mean, they yeah. they sought out the men on the other side. They have gone back and uh, they've helped and become friends. So the combatants themselves are laying the the great framework of, of what wow. we should do, because you know the Vietnamese people are great people. They they really yes. are. And no doubt, so I, I, the veterans are are laying the pathwork for me. That's when I saw them on this trip. I was greatly impressed.
0: Now. Yeah. So, wow. De- Doyle, uh, this has been an amazing interview and uh, what amazing content. This is uh, so clearly important to the message of veteran of Memorial Day and the the work that you've done to, to immoral- memorialize this is just amazing. So thank you for being here today. Again, we've been talking to um, Doyle Glass, his book, uh, Swift Sword, The True Story of the Marines of Mike 3-5 in Vietnam. 4th september of 1967 and more importantly kind of uh what we've all learned from doyle from his book and what's now happening and what should happen regarding uh veterans recognizing uh, the hard sacrifices made by vietnam veterans and how their leadership in 2009 and today is really leading the path forward to show uh, uh america what is necessary to to be honorable to, to serve honorably and more importantly, uh, heal those injuries and wounds from that. Wolf. So don't. Uh, so, Doyle, thank you again for being here today on our truth. And we'll have you get back again sometime very soon.
1: Thank you, Tony. It's been an honor
0: to be here. Thank you. and We'll be back uh, for part two of the show very soon. Stay by. Stand by.
3: Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the Advanced Nasal Solution Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X Save 20% by using promo code
2: Above the interests of big pharma's bottom line, it's the way healthcare should be. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code. Out Loud, for 25% off your first month of One Wellness.
1: Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code Out Loud for 25% off your first order. Order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud.
2: Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers.
1: Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com. Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The Liberty and Justice for All.
0: Hey, it's Tony Shape with The Hard Truth. Part two, powered by Sig Sour, Never Settle. Uh, I don't, you shouldn't. Uh, I had a choice of where I carried in combat. I carried a Sig Sour, uh, P22 eight, as a matter of fact, and uh, I recommend you do the same thing. Carry a sig, never settle. We're on the America Out Loud uh, talk radio network and the America Out Loud podcast network. Check us out. Project Sentinel, projectsentinel.net, London Center for Policy Research, londoncenter.org, yada, yada, yada. Oh, and by the way, uh, Bumper Music by uh, my friend, our friend uh, Sheree Curry. Uh, Always check out her amazing music, and uh, she's always on tour somewhere. I just saw some more dates for her being announced today. And uh, here we are, part two. We're still joined by Doyle Glass, the author of Swiss Sword. So Doyle, thanks for hanging around. We're also joined uh, now for part two uh, by the perplexing and always interesting Elizabeth Breckencamp, uh, uh, always here to help uh, provide uh, good content and questions. <laughs> the uh, the tantalizing Chris Cordani. Always out trying to tantalize people with his uh, <laughs> his wisdom. And then the, the persnickety and always tan, Tanya, Tanya Miller from Hawaii. So here we are uh, for part two of the show. We'll go through and talk about this. So I thought that was a great discussion with Doyle, the first part of the show. And I know everybody has their own issues to go through. So, Tanya, let's talk about your dad a little bit, if you don't mind.
4: My dad? Yeah. My you just him up, so
3: let's talk about. Oh, him, my stepfather.
4: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, my stepfather. Um, yeah, he just. Uh, I was just mentioning to Doyle um, that uh, what an honor it is to have him, especially for this weekend. And um, I know that it's just uh, my my brother and um, my stepfather would just love to have a conversation with you. And I think your book, Swiss Sword. And do you have another book? Was there another book? But yes. I want to make sure.
1: Yeah, Lions of Medina, which was about another company, Marines, on a different operation about a month after Swift Sword in October of nineteen.
4: Yeah, right, right. Those two books, I just really feel I know that they're going to want to check it out. And my stepfather, you know, he has um, reengaged with uh, several uh, former, you know, well, Marines, or excuse me, veterans that he served with. And my father was a marine. My stepfather was in the army, uh, received a Purple Heart. My my um, grandfather on my mother's side served. You know, so many people um, in my family have served. Former students of mine um, I had uh, recruiters come in all branches my uh, former spouse was with the Navy and um, I just want to say thank you for everything that you've done to help share the stories and to be here um, and the insight that you give uh, it's a it's important conversation and and I think you know Memorial Day weekend we're just thinking about the freedoms and what what every what the sacrifices were for and how this all ties into everything now and and the effects you know of course, One of the student projects that I did when I was a teacher was um, homeless, uh, homeless veteran situation in our community. And, um, you know, we have a whole lot of uh, issues around uh, PTSD, uh, mental health issues, suicide, um, and then also sexual harassment and cover ups and corruption and things like that. So just like every other American that, you know, you're there fighting for, we just need freedom from corruption, in all of these areas so that we can live the life that, that, we, that we're here, that we treasure. We care about our country. We want it protected. We don't want any of these extra problems that we don't need to deal with. We really truly, you know, these people are serving for these values and we have to honor and protect them. And those that are alive now, and uh we care about you and that's why we bring up these topics so thanks for that
0: opportunity tony so elizabeth elizabeth you want to go through some of this because i know elizabeth uh, not only is a retired nco and uh, a nurse so i know she's had some thoughts on some of this as well so elizabeth you want to jump in a little bit
2: so yeah my dad he was not in vietnam but he was a marine in world war ii and in the korean war uh he flew helicopters so I have that tie in there. We, uh, he got the distinguished flying cross. We have his uniforms. We still have his Marine um, officer's hat. I mean, it's, it's so cool. Um, but yeah, so public affairs, yeah, being in public affairs, um, I've got to, well, you know, like you did, you know, you got to travel to Vietnam. I haven't been there, but it is fascinating to try to travel to other countries uh, and interview people and get their stories and get their take on, you know, what it means for them to serve their country, not just any country, but to serve, you know, for the United States. And um, it, it really is fascinating. And also as a nurse um, working at the VA here in Richmond, um, I have seen a lot of people with PTSD and, Oh, it's, it, it really is sad, but we do have to do everything that we can to help support them because I actually had, I've so far, I've had really good experiences with the VA. I haven't had any major problems, But I do hear a lot of veterans, especially older veterans, because you know, the system was so different 30, 40 years ago when they got out and they didn't have the technology that we do now. It took so long for them to do their paperwork to get all their benefits. And some people are still really struggling with that still. So, um, you know, I do like the fact that you took the time to do the research and you went there and you you've written two different books about it. And I'm hoping that with the show and with all the work that you're doing, that really does bring more awareness to, um, to what we are trying to do to help support all our military veterans
0: yeah.
2: <clears throat> and their families, too.
0: Absolutely. Chris, did you have some?
3: You've really done your part, especially by honoring some of these people who, are, who, who have gone largely forgotten, forgotten. Vietnam vets, when they came home, were spat upon. They were blamed for the war. They were treated like uh, like garbage. And they weren't treated very well when it came to medical care or anything else, PTSD care, when it was uh, time to get that particular uh, care, if you will. Uh, I don't know why I used that word a few times in the same sentence, but you understand where I'm going. How, I, I would like to hear from you, and I think the audience would as well. How did you get into helping veterans and, and honoring them through your own art?
1: Well, I, you know, like I indicated to Tony earlier, I, I just wanted to tell their story. And uh, one book from World War II, Called With the Old Breed by Eugene Sledge was about a Marine in the Pacific campaign. And it's a raw, unvarnished book about combat and in World War II and about how horrible that is. I wanted to do the same thing for the Vietnam vet, you know, what they experienced, because, like you just said, Chris, they've largely forgotten and have us all give great pause before we send our young men into combat. And when we do have a clear plan and objective on how to win that war, because we're asking uh, an incredible from our, our young men and women. So, um, and I want to echo what, what y'all said earlier about thanking all the veterans for what they've done, because it's just the reason I'm able to go tell these stories and sit in my comfortable office and write these books is because of the sacrifices that they've made.
0: So along that line, then, it's um, very clear that to honor these folks, in my judgment, Doyle, is to have to work, uh, as we talked about, to protect the veterans who exist now, who served and now are suffering. The VA, I think, has had a mixed bag. I, look, I'm Elizabeth. I'm, I'm a disabled veteran, too, and they've been, I've, been, I've had reasonable reasonably good uh, response from them, but not all veterans have that. Uh, some veterans still are homeless. Uh, that's something that's not resolved. And uh, as Chris said, you know, we, we the, the, the fact that you being able to document this is hugely important because I don't think uh, people who don't serve fully understand it. So I think this is something that clearly is important. So do you have any plans uh, to do a third book or what, how do you continue to plan to uh, highlight the amazing work of these veterans and, and help us to honor them?
1: Well, my number one goal is to spread the word about these heralds with the two books, because there's a lot of time, a lot of interviews that took a number of years for both of them to, you know, to put it all together. So that's number one shows like yours uh, talking about PTSD, but also with Vietnam veterans, the effects of Agent Orange, which was used Mm -hmm. almost like, you know, Roundup. And a lot of these guys just they'd walk through it. I've spoken about a lot of the guys that have passed away. I would say eight of those have died from cancer, probably associated mm-hmm. with Agent Orange. So, <clears> throat> throat> wow!
4: <laughs> my uncle people. just passed. With uh, he had it, Agent Orange. It took a long time for that to be confirmed, and that's my my father's oh. brother. He just passed. Uh, I was just on mainland for that funeral. So yeah. So but it took a long time so, for that, you know, to find yeah. out. Mm.
0: So specifically.
1: So, yeah, well, I've got I've got other works in, in in the hopper that I'm working on, but not specifically like these two books. Mm-hmm. So my goal for them is to continue to get the word out like your show, to read the truth, what really happened. And to yeah. for Vietnam mm-hmm. veterans, obviously, cancer is huge. And that's just one
0: of the many issues. So, I mean, it's interesting and we have to honor that. And I, I get it. And I think this is one of the things that's so a challenge that we face and we've all touched upon it and it's tough to deal with. But uh, we need to encourage people to serve. And when you hear, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, Doyle, when you hear some of these challenges people face, it's like it's very discouraging. But I, I you know, I served 30 and a half years. I would do it again. And uh, mm-hmm. I think I, I, Elizabeth probably feels the same way
2: mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. The thing
0: about service, the sacrifice of, of the, the comradeship, like you picked up in your book, all the amazing relationships and, and uh, learning uh, that comes out of being challenged. Those challenges, I think, uh, and while we make mistakes, some could say we made some policy mistakes regarding Vietnam. Uh, you know, uh, we, I think we've recognized that, moved on and said that, hey, look, wasn't the best war, probably the uh, the wrong war for the wrong reasons, but it happened, and and here we are to to make amends, and I I think that's uh, notable for our country to be of that mind, and these men, like you pointed out, they led the way. They led the way to redemption for everyone. How do we then, uh, Doyle, go about trying to encourage those who are skeptical of military service? How do we get them to understand that? Service is not is something that's necessary to preser- preserve the republic. How do we? How do you think we should translate what you've done and others have done, in trying to encourage people to, to to join the military today, if at all?
1: Well, when you speak with these veterans from Vietnam, why did you serve? They'll say oh, most of these guys were volunteers that I write about to right. protect the world from communism, and that was a very real threat—the uh, the um, Cold War and the Soviet bloc and com- you know, chi- communist chi- China a very right. real threat. As, as you indicated, policy, you know, the tactics weren't obviously the best, but the correct right. incentive was there. They wanted to protect the Republic, Tony, just like yeah. you indicated. The message right. is still clear. It's the same. It's clear today. We have threats coming from Russia in a different form with the Ukrainian war. Uh, China, obviously. Is China, especially. Country. China, yes. China. We still have the threat yeah. of terrorism in Afghanistan and Um, you know, the Taliban being back in control there. So the same challenges exist. Our enemies are patient. They have long memories. We in the United States, you know, we were, it's more changes of administration and policy and it's much quicker our memory. But you have to be clear. I said, do you want to continue to have this republic in in a free world, not just the United States, but we're still the leaders in the free world They're, were the most powerful country. Western Europe, other democracies, they still look to us. So I think the message is the same. Look, we're, we're, we're going to make do better about making decisions so we don't make mistakes like we did in Vietnam. We're going to be clear about our objectives. But when you serve young men and women, you are doing something great for our country and for your children and for future generations in, preser- in preserving this incredible republic.
0: Well, I, that's a great way of looking at it. And I think that uh, those who serve obviously do gain benefit of understanding and service to the republic. I think it's important for that. But that's where I think today our government, uh, the Pentagon in particular, has to recalibrate its message to talk about one of service, not how they can benefit you. I think people sign up to serve and, and recognize that that self-sacrifice is something important to preserving the principles. And again, I, we didn't get it all right in Vietnam. There's no way to put a, a happy face on that. But again, I think looking back on it now, all these years later, the fact that people who served there were blamed for the war, I mean, come on, that's insane. Yet that was the attitude of the American public. And by the way, pushed by the American left. The left was basically uh, demonizing these people because they were doing what they were, the, 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 they were told to do. So this is something else that I think we have to recognize that, that those individuals were wrongly accused of being the perpetrators of bad policy, and that's and so we need to recognize that no, they went and served uh, Doyle for the very reasons you just outlined for service, for the to protect the republic, to do what they thought they had to do, to maintain the integrity of our way of life. And as Tanya said earlier, that accountability issue. I think there's been issues that that we've gone through as a nation. To make up an account for some of the mistakes made in Vietnam, so I think it's important that we recognize that. So, uh, Chris, back over to you. Is it, it? I think it's that time again, isn't it? It's, it's deja vu all over again, as, as I've
3: heard. It is. It's that time of <laughs> the hard truth of Tony Schaefer. It's Tony's takes. That's, That's brought right. to you by Sig Sauer. Never settle, and never I try settle. not to settle. That's right. But let's let's hear this. Here, here's some fun. Yes. Two new candidates for president. Want yeah. your take on him. One is surprise. Tim Scott. He says he's going to run. One, well, pretty much the worst kept secret since uh, well, since uh, the Mets in 1962 were pretty bad. <laughs> Ron DeSantis. Ron he's DeSantis. running for president. As I know well. that, Your yeah. take on I've both the him. candidates. I've been in the room with him. So well, let's start
0: with Tim Scott. Wasn't he great on The Office? Didn't he play a great office manager in The Office? Like oh, that's a different Scott. That's a different Scott. Nope. Michael Scott. <laughs> I, I got it wrong. Michael. That's my mistake. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's my mistake. No, um, Tim, look, uh, Senator Scott has been a good guy from all accounts. And uh, I live in North Carolina. He's in South Carolina, so I don't have that much interaction with him. But I I do think that uh, as things go, he's been put upon multiple times by the left because he's not their version of left because he's black. But, well, you know, apparently you can't really be black unless you're a progressive. At least that's what the narrative is. And I think that's an appropriate, so I think, regressive. Back, I'm sorry, regressive, or regressive, regressive. Yeah, regressive. regressive. So I think it's good to stand up. So any, any other thoughts on, on, uh, oh, hold on, let me throw in DeSantis. So I, I'll, you know, full disclosure, I know, uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, I worked with him when he was part of the Freedom Caucus, uh, he and Walter Jones and Mark Meadows and all those guys. And I, you know, I, I respect him greatly. And, yeah, it's not been all that big a secret that he was going to run for president. So I guess mm-hmm. I guess the, the, the time is, is, is near. What is interesting, I guess, is the whole um, the whole issue regarding uh, Internet. Right. About uh, about uh, Elon Musk and all that uh, about the presentation. So anyway, so over to you guys. What do you all think about uh, Senator Scott and Ron DeSantis?
2: I I think they're both really good uh, candidates. Um, I was listening to I believe it was Dana Lash yesterday. And and even though I do think I like everything about Tim Scott, but she was pointing out he he hasn't really done enough to make himself uh, knowable, you know, throughout the country because you know like if you ask your neighbor hey what do you think about Tim Scott running a lot of people are like who's Tim Scott i mean a lot of people yeah. still really don't know who he is right. it's, it's no offense against the guy i'm sure he's no. he seems like really squared every video every um everything i've seen with him where he's questioning people he's spot on but i think he just hasn't done enough um national significant things you know where where he's really made himself known whereas a whole lot more people know who DeSantis is and they're either really for him or they're really against him but um but you know I like them both I think yeah. Both well DeSantis great.
0: has got name neck recognition Scott doesn't at this point so yeah
4: <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing more like Elizabeth said I look forward to hearing more about and learning more myself um just learning more you know like she said yeah. and the notoriety and all that and then it'll be interesting with DeSantis in and of course the back and forth between Trump and him and what what is that going to pull out? I think it's going to make uh, Trump have to be a better, you know, present better with what he has to what, what the differences are. Anytime you throw somebody else into the mix, then you're going to have more competition and then you're going to have to bring a better game. Right. You no, know, he's just—it's mm-hmm. just, it's just going to bring that out.
0: So, a question yeah. for you on that. So, do you think that uh, DeSantis would be better off by uh, tanning more and having more of an orange skin?
4: Would help him? <laughs> no, I'm just no I think he does great with uh, his demeanor, and that's what helps him. And one of uh, Trump's hurt—you know—you may appreciate his policy and his business and all the his toughness and all of that. Uh, but there's other things that obviously hurt him and make it very easy to cause problems and divisiveness. When um, the certain media outlets just want to focus on those antics, it makes it difficult for people who support him in other areas and maybe don't necessarily care for characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes it difficult for them to support him, share any information about him um, that they that they actually want to have a dialogue. Because you know, you may have a perfect speech and then one little thing, and you're like, "Ah, I'm I'm not. You know, so that that makes it difficult to support him. And Mm -hmm. then, of course, I have a couple of issues with him that I hope he comes out in front of um, and I could have a little more support for him if he comes out in front of those things. But of course, a lot of people who did a vote for him are going to be looking at him again, like, okay, now we've got this option. We've had Mm -hmm. we had this great time and we really know some people think he should be in there right now and that he got cheated. So, you know, there's going to be that interest Mm -hmm. to, hey, he was earned this. He was deserved this. He should be there. Look at everything we've gone through. Let's get him back in. You know, you're not going to screw us over again. So I can understand all of that. But at the same time, I, I'm as concerning about the frac how it's going to fraction up because all the DeSantis people, a lot of them would vote for Trump if DeSantis wasn't in. So it's like, oh, this is just yeah. a whole lot going on. And then you throw in RFK uh, Jr. in the mix and he's going to be taking some of those would be Trump supporters. So here's what's really going
3: to happen. Here's what's yeah. really happening. Scott and DeSantis, Scott and DeSantis are running for 2000, uh, 2028. That's what's happening. It looks like Trump's going to win the nomination, at least as it stands now. Maybe they can step in if something goes wrong. But anybody who is running in the in the Republican Party's uh, primary is running for the year twenty twenty eight. They need the name recognition. Uh, DeSantis has name recognition, but he does need to meet people in the middle. Tim Scott needs name recognition. This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm that's good.
0: That's a
4: strategy. I mean, for sure, it's a strategy, and um, it makes sense. And. Uh, but anything can happen. Uh, things have been crazy. Oh, yeah. And honestly, it's more about the voting I'm concerned about than who's running because it's like, whole, I mean, all of the above. But Election we don't fraud. know what's happening with Dominion. We don't know what's happening with a push for some other sort of uh, from what Dominion said. They're going to need a whole new platform or we're going to go back to paper ballots. OK, can we go back to paper ballots? But I don't see that happening. Dominion's so I think having financial troubles
3: at this point anyway. And that's... Yeah. Uh, that's another yeah. story. We're going to be getting Tony's take on that in the next couple of weeks. I want to get a little handle on that before we even ask you, Tony. However, I do want your take on this one. Right. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban says there is no logical way at this point Ukraine can win the war against Russia. Having said that, regardless of who's the aggressor here, and, and look, there are no good guys apparently, but what, did Orban say what most of us were thinking, or is he in any way off base on this? What's your so, take, Tony?
0: Yeah, so I I won't even try to make fun of this because I think it's too serious. It's all about the numbers. And and let me be very clear for the audience because often I get accused of, of, you're taking a side, I'm not taking a side. My job is to call balls and strikes. It's not to take a side. So uh, if you take his comments on face value, he's absolutely correct. The numbers don't add up. There's absolutely Mm -hmm. no way the Ukrainians are going to prevail uh, when they've taken seven to one casualties, those are the, the, the ones the Pentagon had released un- uh, unknowingly in that leak of information. My sources tell me it's about the same number in real life. And unless there's a, a direct, ju- you know, unless NATO or some other third nation jumps in with troops to help Ukraine regarding the spring ups offensive, which now we're almost at summer. So the spring's kind of wandering away. It's not going to happen. So I think this is where I agree with president Trump. I, I'm not trying to be political, We need to focus on how to end this thing and stop the the suffering of the people of Ukraine before it gets out of hand. Another thing I'll say real quick, Putin's not going to lose. If that requires him to go to nukes, he'll do it. And I I just Mm -hmm. don't think uh, and and the reason he'll do it because he thinks he can get away with it. He he believes that (laughs) leadership is so uh, frail right now that there would be no response. He's banking on that. And it's and I'm sure we'd respond, but he doesn't believe it. So, as many things during the Cold War is all about perceptions. So the perceptions uh, right now are very bad. So I know we have to be very quick, but if anybody wants to jump in there and kind of talk about that, go ahead.
3: He has a two-year window, or less than two-year window to get yeah. it done. By the way, that I can tell you.
0: Yeah, well, it's not going to happen. It's yeah. just, it's just, it's just a difficult time. So, um, Doyle, I, I, I don't want you to prognosticate, to get, get yourself in trouble, but uh, I just, you know, as much as as anything, I understand that. The Russians, the aggressors, I get it. Uh, but it, it's like um, uh, we're, at the time of taping, there's the big issue of the F-16. The F-16 is not a silver bullet. It's a very fast aircraft, very effective for the time it was designed. But uh, the idea that one airplane showing up in a battlefield, oh, we're going to win with that. It's not going to happen. You know, it's like the sure. M-16. It, 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 we talked about the M-16 a little bit. A single sure. weapon especially if it's not designed properly or fielded properly it doesn't it's not, not going to win a war with that And i think we're at that point right now where we can give these guys all sorts of great tanks and technology but unless you've got the numbers of people to use them you're not going to achieve much and that's where we're at right now so
3: quickly we have about a minute and a half here's some fun hillary clinton is at it oh. again she says if donald trump gets elected in 2024 it's the end of democracy as we know it or should i say it's the end of uh, her form of democracy. So maybe that's an endorsement. What's your take? So did, did, was this, did she make the statement with or without her flying monkeys
0: uh, present? Just out of curiosity. I'm just, uh, I just, I didn't, I missed it. So I didn't.
3: She made sure nobody had glasses of water near her. Let's put uh, that's that right. right.
0: Well, you know, oh. yeah, I'm, I'm melting. So yes. Uh, look, I we gotta be, so I just, I'm just telling you right now uh, to remind our audience, we don't, have a democracy we have we have a representative republic we are a republic Mm -hmm. and uh, pure democracies do not work out well you don't want the overwhelming ability of the majority to to uh to do things to the minority it's not in our interest so you know Uh, but hillary may live in an alternate universe chris i don't know maybe do you think that maybe she's lost touch with what's real just asking i mean bill clinton is pretty real but he puts his hands on other things besides
3: hillary i think I don't want to minimize what people are suffering through when it comes to PTSD, but I do believe she felt so entitled to the presidency in 2016 (laughs) that she suffered of what one could call a mentally traumatic event by not getting what she felt she was entitled to.
0: Well, I I think uh, maybe we could, do you think we could send her a case of potted meat? Would that make her feel better, Chris? You know. (laughs) Throw some money together and make her feel better. You know, it's like, here, here's some. I'll
4: buy here. her a one-way ticket think, out of the country. I'll I think her, her anger comes to... yeah. from, I, I don't know what her anger comes from. She She's not, that's not very democratic if she's can, so concerned about that. But it, it shows it's so much more behind it. It's not about serving oh, yeah. for us. It's about her. It's always been mm-hmm. about her. It's corruption. And what the hell is she so scared of that somebody else is going to be in power? Well,
0: Tonya, exactly. I, I, feel, I feel your pain. I feel your mm-hmm. pain. I do.
4: Uh-huh.
2: I do,
0: <laughs> And uh, let's be clear about Hillary. I like Hillary a lot.
2: <laughs> I don't think
0: so. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. On that note, I can do my Reagan, too, happen. but that's, that that's enough happen. for today, right? <laughs> okay, I've got my Bill Clinton. Uh, dude, that's good. All that's right, so convincing. this has been the latest episode of The Art of Truth. Our, our guest has been uh, uh, Doyle Glass. Uh, yeah, and we were you, always bro. joined by our normal cast, of Chris Cardani, Tanya Miller, and Andrew Crick Camp. It's been a great show. Thank you all for being here. We'll be here again next week on the America Out Loud out radio network. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you soon.